0: Chapter Three of *Riceyman's Steps* by Arnold Bennett. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Anthony Ogus. The bookseller at home, at the back of the rather spacious and sombre shop, which by reason of the bays of bookshelves seemed larger than it really was, came a small room with a doorway but no door into the shop. This was the proprietor's den. Seated at his desk therein he could see through a sort of irregular lane of books to the bright oblong of the main entrance which was seldom closed. There were more books to the cubic foot in the private room even than in the shop. They rose in tiers to the ceiling and they lay in mounds on the floor. They also covered most of the flat desk and all the window sill. Some were perched on the silent grandfather's clock the sole piece of furniture except the desk a safe and two chairs and a step ladder for reaching the higher shelves the bookseller retired to this room as to a retreat upon the departure of dr raster and looked about fingering one thing or another in a mild amicable manner and disclosing not the least annoyance ill-humour worry or pressure of work he sat down to a cumbrous old typewriter on the desk and, after looking at some correspondence, inserted a sheet of cheap letter-paper into the machine. The printed letter-head on the sheet was T. T. Reisman, but in fulfilment of the new law, the name of the actual proprietor, Henry Earl Forward, had been added in violet with an India-rubber stamp and crookedly. Mr Earl Forward began to tap placidly and very deliberately as one who had the whole of eternity before him for the accomplishment of his task. A little bell rang. The machine dated from the age when typewriters had this contrivance for informing the operator that the end of a line would be reached in two or three more taps. Then a great clatter occurred at the window, and the room became dark. The blue-black blind had slipped down, discharging thick clouds of dust. "'Dear, dear,' murmured Mr Earl Forward, groping towards the window. He failed to raise the blind again. The cord was broken. As he coughed gently in the dust he could not recall that the blind had been once drawn since the end of the war. "'I must have that seen too,' he murmured, and turned on the electric light over the desk." The porcelain shade of the lamp wore a heavy layer of dust, which, however, had not arrived from the direction of the blind, being the product of slow, secular accumulation. Mr Earl Forward regretted to be compelled to use electric current, and rightly considering the price, but the occasion was quite special. He could not seize to tap by a candle.' Many a time on winter evenings he had gently told an unimportant customer in that room that a fuse had gone, and lighted a candle. He was a solitary man, and content in his solitude. At any rate he had been content, until the sight of the newly come lady across the way began to disturb the calm deep of his mind. He was a man of routine, and happy in routine, dr raster's remarks about his charwoman were seriously upsetting him he foresaw the possibility if the charwoman should respond to the alleged passion of her suitor of a complete derangement of his existence but he was not a man to go out to meet trouble he had faith in time which for him was endless and inexhaustible and even in this grave matter of his domesticity he could calmly reflect that if the lady across the way whom he had not yet spoken to, should favour him, he might be in a position to ignore the vagaries of all char women. He was in fact a very great practical philosopher, tenacious, it is true, in his ideas, but nevertheless profoundly aware of the wisdom of compromising with destiny. Twenty-one years earlier he had been a placid and happy clerk in an insurance office, anticipating an existence devoted wholly to fire risks destiny had sent him one evening to his uncle T. T. riciman in riciman's steps and into the very room where he was now tapping riciman took to him seeing in the young man a resemblance to himself riciman began to talk about his well-loved clerkenwell and especially about what was for him the marvellous outstanding event in the clerkenwell history namely the construction of the underground railway from clerkenwell to euston square henry had never forgotten the old man's almost melodramatic recital so full of astonishing and quaint incidents the old man swore that exactly one thousand lawyers had signed a petition in favour of the line and exactly one thousand butchers had signed another similar petition all clerkenwell was mad for the line But when the construction began, all Clerkenwell trembled. The earth opened in the most unexpected and undesirable places. Streets had to be barred to horse traffic. Pavements resembled switchbacks. Hundreds of houses had to be propped, and along the line of the tunnel itself scores of houses were suddenly vacated, lest they should bury their occupants. The sacred workhouse came near to dissolution, and was only saved by inconceivable timberings. The still more sacred Cobham's head public-house was first shaken and torn with cracks, and then inundated by the bursting of the new river main, and the landlady died of shock. The thousand lawyers and the thousand butchers wished they had never humbly prayed for the accursed line, and all this was as naught compared to the culminating catastrophe There was a vast excavation at the mouth of the tunnel near Clerkenwell Green. It was supported by enormous brick piers and by scaffoldings erected upon the most prodigious beams that the wood trade could produce. One night, a spring Sunday in 1862, the year of the second great exhibition, the adjacent earth was observed to be gently sinking, and then some cellars filled with foul water. Alarm was raised. Railway officials and metropolitan officers rushed together and for three days and three nights laboured to avert a supreme calamity. Huge dams were built to strengthen the subterranean masonry. Nothing was left undone. Vain effort. On the Wednesday the pavement sank definitely. The earth quaked. The entire populace fled to survey the scene of horror from safety. The terrific scaffolding and beams were flung like firewood into the air and fell with awful crashes. The populace screamed at the thought of workmen entombed and massacred. A silence. Then the great brick piers fifty feet in height moved bodily. The whole bottom of the excavation moved in one mass a dark and fetid liquid appeared oozing rolling surging smashing everything in its resistless track and rushed into the mouth of the new tunnel the crown of the arch of the mighty fleet sewer had broken men wept at the enormity and completeness of the disaster but the underground railway was begun afresh and finished and grandly inaugurated "'and at first the public fought for seats in its trains "'and then could not be persuaded to enter its trains "'because they were uninhabitable, and so on, and so on. "'Old fat Riceman told his tale with such force and fire "'that he had a stroke. "'In foolishly trying to lift the man, "'Henry had slipped and hurt his knee. "'The next morning Riceman was dead. "'Henry inherited.' A strange episode, but not stranger than thousands of episodes in the lives of plain people. Henry knew nothing of book-selling. He learnt. His philosophic placidity helped him. He had assistants, one after another, but liked none of them. When the last one went to the Great War, Henry gave him no successor. He managed, and in addition did earnest sleep-denying work, as a limping special constable and now in 1919 here he was an institution he heard a footstep and in the gloom of his shop made out the surprising apparition of his charwoman and he was afraid and lost his philosophy he felt that she had arrived specially as she would being a quaint and conscientious young woman to warn him with proper solemnity that she would soon belong to another undoubtedly the breezy and interfering dr raster had come in not to buy a shakespeare but to inquire about elsie shakespeare was merely the excuse for elsie by the way that mislaid flaxman illustrated edition ought to be hunted up soon to-morrow if possible end of chapter three